Welcome to Two Way Street. Over the four years that we've been producing this show, I've considered it a real privilege to talk to so many amazing people of accomplishment and then to present those conversations to you. I've interviewed authors, theater professionals, singers and songwriters, public health doctors doing crucial work, journalists, historians, and so many more. We choose our guests because we think they have good stories to tell, stories that we believe you'll find inspiring or thought-provoking or just plain entertaining. And always my hope is that you'll learn something new from our guests. As we begin our fifth year of Two-Way Street, I wanted to revisit one of my very favorite conversations. It's a show we presented in November of 2015. Our guest was the truly remarkable Diana Nyad, who had just published a new memoir. Here's the show. On September 2, 2013, a dazed and barely coherent Diana Nyad walked ashore at Key West, Florida, completing a 111-mile swim from Cuba to the United States. To this day, she's the only swimmer to complete that extraordinary journey without the aid of a shark tank. She was 64 years old. The Cuba to Florida crossing was Nyad's obsession for more than 35 years. By the time she was 25, she'd already captured headlines as a long-distance ocean swimmer when she set the speed record for a swim around Manhattan Island. But the Cuba to Florida dream was already taking shape in her mind. She made her first attempt in 1978 when she was 28. Storms and raging seas pushed her far off course and she was forced to abandon the swim. But she was eager to try the route again a year later. Tensions between Cuba and the United States got in the way, and she was denied entry to Cuba. And so she shelved her dream when she was 30. She went into broadcasting, reporting for ABC's Wide World of Sports, doing a talk show at CNBC, and hosting a program for NPR, which she says was her favorite broadcasting job of all of them. She thought her days of ocean swimming were behind her, but they weren't. How Nyad rekindled the Cuba to Florida dream more than 30 years after her first attempt, how she struggled and failed three more times in 2010, 2011, and 2012, and the harrowing story of her triumph on the fifth effort is the story she tells in her new book, Find a Way. Naya joined me in the GPB studios to talk about her book, and as you can imagine, she is a force of nature. So you want to do this? Let us begin on our two-way street. What a treat to have you here for two-way street. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, Bill. I, I get to sit down and talk with a, a smart guy. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the next few minutes, we'll find out whether that is true or we'll, not. We'll be the judge of that. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you don't mind, I want to start at the very end of your journey. And what, what I'd like especially to do is take just a moment to play uh, for you uh, the uh, last moments of the fifth and final swim from Cuba to Key West. Can we listen to that right now? Uh, yeah, I'm always, you know, I, I like to, usually a progressive person I'm looking for, but that's one moment I don't mind going back for. 
Diana Nyad, where did that happen? Well, you know, the odd thing about it, Bill, is it's such a, a long journey and a, and a moment that's so, you know, rife with emotion. It's, it's like when you, see, when you see Roger Federer and he wins Wimbledon and he goes to his knees and cries on the grass, it's not because he won that match. It's the entire career. It's all the people who, who suffered through with him, who believed in him. It's all the losses. It's all the th- hundreds of thousands of hours of practice strokes. So you can imagine this is a 35-year dream. I had started it when I was 28 years old and finally you know, stumbled up on that beach at the age of 64. So there was, there was a deep emotion of pride and satisfaction and team and, and, uh, and journey. And, and it, that, that was Smathers Beach, Key West. Uh, from what I am told, there were a few thousand people there and they were crying. They were highly emotional. And I realized afterwards, I was pretty stunned. You could hear in my last sentence there, I was going down. And I, 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 I wished I could have stayed there for hours and hugged everybody and been with my team, but there, there just wasn't anything left. But you know what, Bill? I really believe that people responded to my story not as an athletic event. Clearly, it's that. It's an endurance achievement. Those things go without saying. But it was a moment of watching a person get knocked down and fail over and over again and refuse to give up. Well, and I want to go back and tell that story in broad strokes uh, because it's the story you tell in Find a Way, your new memoir, your book about your life and about the five attempts you made to swim from Cuba to Key West. When you hear that audio again, does it still conjure up emotion in you? It does, but it's not, ironically enough, because you're playing the triumphant moment on the beach, that's not where my memory goes. You said something very interesting in your book about that. It's not the, the victory, the success at the end. It's the journey. It is. Okay. I, I rarely think about that victorious moment. I, I mean, I can. I can picture it, especially when I see pictures or hear the audio. But, you know, for me, and I had to, didn't I? The, this, this destination of Florida was seeming more and more elusive with each try. And people, good swimmers, have been trying since 1959. Not that I lost faith in it. I believed we were going to see those lights of Key West. We were going to see those palm trees one day. But I must say that I was coming closer and closer to believing that the odds were highly against it. So uh, your uh, speech was uh, uh, made more uh, difficult because of the sores that you had in your mouth, and we'll talk about that, But uh, and the, sound, the crowd noise was loud. 
tell us what those three things were you said again. You know, you, you would find this funny, and I'm just going to admit it, in a very overblown ego sort of way, when you're out there training for constant grueling hours, you do a 12-hour swim one day, you're lying vomiting on the floor, and then you get out of the fetal position and do a 13-hour swim the next day, and blah, blah. So that training, tougher than the swims themselves, frankly, if you look at it overall, I always, Bill, had this oration planned. When I finally make it to the other shore, imagine the pearls of wisdom that are going to, you know, I'm going to be quoting Browning and grasping for the for the eternity. But it didn't happen that way. I've never said those words before. I don't know where they came from. I think those were just truly the authentic messages I swam with. Let's say them again. Never, ever give up. And, you know, am I the first to say that? We can go back to Churchill and I'm sure Napoleon and uh, certainly uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But the idea is there's only one sure way to fail. You just don't try again. Um, and I think a lot of people, they, they feel that g- giving up is easy. Quitting's easy. But you really want something. You have another shore. Maybe you're battling cancer. Maybe you've, you've, you've always wanted to write that novel, but things didn't turn out that way. Well, it's not only never too late, but you can get knocked down, and the publisher isn't going to publish your novel, and the, the doctor has more bad news for you. If you just don't give up, chances are you're going to get to the other side of whatever you're trying to Cross, you're going to find a way. And number two? You're never too old to chase your dreams. You were 64 when and, you finally and, on the fifth attempt. And I attempt. might add a, a better <laughs> athlete. And I'm not saying that the lines don't come on the face, the breasts droop a little lower than they used to. I'm always shocked when I look in the mirror these days. I say, is that really where those breasts are riding these days? Um, so I don't deny my age. I'm 66 now. But I'll tell you something. Standing on that shore... In, in, on Smathers Beach, Key West, at 64, I truly believe I was not only, yes, we all feel more mature, uh, more enlightened, more, you know, embracing of this life we get to lead, more appreciative as we get older, but I actually was a better athlete at 64 for this sport than I ever was in my 20s. What's the third thing? It looks like a solitary sport, and doesn't it? I mean, you know, how many hours do you see the left arm and the right arm? Nobody else is in the water. You're the one, except, you know, my shark divers, but you're the only one swimming. And on the other hand, how would I ever in a million years have achieved this without Bonnie, the head of my head handler team, and my shark divers? How am I going to thank those guys? They put their life ahead of mine, swimming below me all night. The jellyfish experts, the navigation experts, that's a tricky current to pass through. Am I right that it... There's something like 44 people who you count as part of the team that helped you get to uh, this uh, uh, final goal? Technically, um, I, I have to thank all 44, but the truth is a number of those people I hadn't met until the night before. They're, okay. they're, they're the, the outer circle of the motherships. We have five boats, but the inner circle is closer to 25. Okay, so let's go back um, because here's what's fascinating to me. And there's a way in which there was a certain destiny to your being a swimmer. As you point out, it didn't turn out being a competitive swimmer, at least in terms of the Olympics. Uh, your father, Eris, is that how you pronounce yep, his yep, name? Yep, Eris, yeah. He made it clear to you that your name... Um, Nyad was what? So my father, and talk about larger than life, you know, maybe I, I caught on to that whole spirit from him, but he was a, he was a, a dramatic 
theatrical person. Every day was an exaltation for Aristotle's Zenith Naiad. <laughs> Tears were standing in his eyes constantly. And so I, the day I turned five, I mean, you know, you know a five-year-old. They, they don't know much. He called me into the den, and he had Webster's unabridged big fat dictionary open. He had his hands on the dictionary, welling with tears, and he said, Darling, I have been waiting for this day for you to turn five because today you are going to understand the most important thing I will ever tell you. Donnie, come here. Your name is in the dictionary. You go ask your little friends tomorrow, is their name in the dictionary? They will tell you no. And he starts to read, Naiad, in Greek mythology, were the nymphs that, that protected the lakes, rivers, oceans, fountains for the gods. Swimmers. And he said the second <laughs> definition is the modern colloquial definition. He said, listen to me, darling. This is your destiny, Naiad. Girl or woman, champion swimmer oh my god <laughs> so it turned out bill when i just when i forged my way through my own uh world view that i don't believe in destiny but i just happened to become a champion swimmer. <laughs> there was another incident that your mother and you a moment that you and your mother shared when you were young that spoke to your destiny you were um you were in Florida with her, standing on the beach. Where were you? You weren't in Key West in at Fort that point, Fort Lauderdale. What was the conversation? You know, the you Cuba, were like eight years old. I yeah, think. nine. I think nine? the Cuban okay. Revolution had happened, and you know, uh, I dare say, people around the world, but certainly people up and down the coast where I lived, we we had a a mystique buzz about Cuba. You know, it was this forbidden land, and all the Cubans had come over. We were eating Cuban food. We were speaking Spanish. It became a little Havana, you know, where I lived. And um, I, I was already a little swimmer. I was already into the whole discipline of getting up at 4.30 in the morning. And I was standing on the beach with my mother one day, and she had already been dancing salsa at the Hotel Nacional, you know, the <laughs> playground of uh, Jackie Kennedy and all of them. And I said, Mom, where is it? I know Cuba's right out there. I just, I can't see it. Where's Cuba? And she said, okay, I'm going to show you. Come here. Lift up your arm. No, no, no. A little bit uh, this way, to the left a little bit. She said, it's right there. As a matter of fact, it's so close, you, little swimmer, could almost swim there. I, okay, so... When I read that, I, I wondered, do you think that that somewhere got into the back of your brain somewhere. and stayed forever? I, I wouldn't <laughs> say that it was concrete. I, I don't think it was formulated yeah. as one day. Sure. You know, it's not like Jim Thorpe, uh, you know, saying, I'm going to be the great football player. It, it, but, but I think that it was a, a little meandering <laughs> flutter in the back of the imagination. Then you had another interesting uh, uh, coincidence about swimming. You were at the Columbia University swimming pool. And there were photographs of all the swimmers up on the walls of the pool. You were a little older at this point, And you saw a picture that you suddenly had a moment of recognition. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know much of my family. Um, I never did meet all the Nyad people. And as far as we know, all those stories about that family were fiction because everything he taught was fiction, <laughs> Aris Nyad. But my mother, she was abandoned at the age of two months. So she didn't know her New York family either. She was raised in Paris. And uh, I knew a lot of that history. But none of the people, I never met a, an aunt, a, a cousin, a, a grandparent. I, we just didn't know her family. She didn't know much about them either. I swam around Manhattan Island when I was 20. 
26 years old. And I was just going to get my picture taken up at the old Columbia pool, not the new one, but there's an old, uh, the all the Ivy League schools have You'd their... already completed this, this swim yeah. around the island, which yeah. got you in the headlines. Yeah, I was pretty Big well deal. known. So I was going to for some, some photo shoot, okay. I forget from him. I got there before the photographer and I had my suit on. I had a towel around my neck and I was just going around looking at the pictures of the old guys from the 1800s who were on the Columbia swimming team. There were these beautiful black and white photos. In those days, the men parted their hair in the middle and they had the suits that came up, you know, over the top of their bodies. And they were all standing with their arms folded and their <laughs> biceps bulging. And I read about this one and that one and that one. And I came to one and I said, wait a second, George Warrington Curtis. That's my mother's father's name. And I didn't know one thing about him, really, except some sort of business history. And it says under there, the captain of the Columbia track team, I think it was something like 1888, and the captain of the Columbia swimming team. And then my eyes bulged out. It said, the first person ever to swim across Long Island Sound. And I thought, <laughs> but I, I, I not only know who the grandfather was, I, I have a genetic history. You have a, uh, a really colorful uh, family. Um, and we'll talk in a moment about the fact that it wasn't all pleasant. Um, your father abused you. Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about him uh, uh, without blinking. Uh, you came to a piece about uh, this at some point in your life and can now talk about him with some, I think, calm, yes? Yeah, yeah, and you know, uh, I don't know why. I'd have to really sit on a shrink's couch for another couple of decades, yeah. so I'm kind of done with doing that. But um, for some reason, the father, I don't even know if you word, use the word forgiveness, but I've decided at this age to pluck out the charming theatrical, sort of larger-than-life guy that he was and leave behind the conscienceless yeah, person he, he was. was. He, was, he, was, he, was he, he treated you badly in many ways, but he's also a con man. He was a criminal. He was. He was. He, and, was, he was a bad guy. But the coach... Who, who I was molested by over and over again in my teenage years. And by the way, many other girls of my era were too. And then it turned out many girls of, of, of subsequent eras were by this coach who wound up in the Hall of Fame, wound up Olympic coach himself. And this is the syndrome that often happens. These guys uh, have the world in their back pocket and the victim is the one who can never bring justice to it. So for some reason, and I could analyze it, I could, if you and I had hours, I, I would be able to tell you that the anger and the and the state of non-forgiveness with that coach uh, is much, much stronger than my father. There are moments of revelation at various stages of your life, which you document in the book. And, and one of them uh, that I, I think is worth talking about. It takes you back to when you were 16. Um, you were suffering this terrible abuse at the hands of, of a coach who, who had been your inspiration, the man who was making you a competitive swimmer, who I, I suppose was something of a father figure to you at that point. And if you don't mind, can I, can I read you the couple of lines that, that I, I think really are worth describing? Um, you're under, you're, you're in the you're in the pool, and you're down at the bottom of the pool, apparently. You're 16 feet down thinking about what's going on with you. And you say, you turned your back forever on the concept of destiny. Being molested was not my fate. This was the moment I decided being a champion wasn't by destiny either. Hard work and focus and will would shape my future. Nothing was meant to be. That's powerful. Yeah, it is. And th by the way, that going to the bottom of the pool that night, that was the night of the first violent molestation. And I, I think that I rose to some level of strength and vision that night to say, 
you know, bull that my destiny is to be a swimmer or my destiny is to be what I was called in the dictionary or my destiny is to be molested by this pig of a man. I am going to make my own destiny. So um, I think that was the night that I turned away from things are just meant to be. You know, I think all of us, you know, you can read Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and these are all abstract ideas and come upon your philosophies of life, but probably nothing teaches us like real life experiences. That's when you come upon, you know, if you tell me you see ghosts, and you sit with them and they sit with you. Who am I to tell you you don't? Right. But if you see them, that's your real life experience and you believe in ghosts. So I was always taught from that moment of being five that you have destiny. And I grew up with a, a father who was, a, you know, involved in, a, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church. So he very much believed in, you know, things are meant to be. And of course, that's the, uh, the phrase du jour these days. But for me, it's sort of it's a it's a shame to feel that you know then where is hope where is discipline where is a vision that you you create your own destiny we all need luck we need mentorship we need a lot of things for things to, to fall in place but if you believe that hey it's just all meant to be you know you can't do anything about it you should just you should just be in glory that you are right where you're meant to be i just don't think that that the human spirit is included in that equation it strikes me that really is a, um, a a totem of your life, making it happen yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I and I do think you know I, I actually argued with the publisher. I wanted to call this book "One Wild and Precious Life," which is the title of the last chapter, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's just to just to rip off blatantly the the brilliant poet Mary Oliver. That's her line, and I attribute her yeah. all through the book to that line. But I wanted to call it the book that. Because to me, it just it just can't be said better for any of us. You've got one, only one. And I know you believe that today we're on a two-way street uh, because we're talking back and forth and, and traveling back and forth. But living-wise and moving toward aging and eventually death, we're all on a one-way street. And for her to say, you've got one, what are you doing with it? You're one wild and precious life. I just I just thought I can't do better for a title. The publisher never wanted that title anyway. They wanted Find a Way, which is one of my slogans. It's it's many people's slogans. I didn't make it up, but I have t-shirts with it on it and uh that the swim represented it. You know, it's tough out there. Life is tough, but if you want to get, as I said before, across whatever road you're walking, you will somehow find a way. Okay. So yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's my. Uh, it's my motto. Yeah. If you're just joining us on this fourth anniversary of Two Way Street, we're revisiting one of my favorite shows. It's a 2015 conversation I had with the great long distance swimmer Diana Nyad. We'll have more after the break. back to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, on the fourth anniversary of our show, we're revisiting one of my favorite conversations. It was with Diana Nyad, recorded back in November of 2015. 
In 2013, at the age of 64, she became the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida without the protection of a shark cage. But before succeeding, she had made four attempts to complete that harrowing journey, the first when she was just 28 years old, the next three starting when she'd turned 60. Many ocean swimmers and those who know the treacherous waters of that 100-mile stretch of the Gulf thought she was chasing an impossible dream. But as she writes in her memoir, Find a Way, Nyad was determined to prove them all wrong. So um, uh, you became an ocean swimmer uh, when you realized you were never going to make it as a, a competitive swimmer in the Olympics. Um, and uh, Cuba to Florida captured your imagination. It, it was did. the only route of all the routes that you looked at on charts and maps. Once you saw that, you were hooked, right? Hooked. Uh, addicted, uh, single focused, couldn't think of anything else, obsessed. You know, I don't know if you ever read the story of Philippe Petit. Man on wire. Sure. So, you know, he had done all the major walks across wires, the, the big bridges in France and whatnot. And he was just minding his own business in a, in a dentist or a doctor's office one day. And he was just like you do, just flipping through pages, waiting for his appointment. And he saw the World Trade Centers when they were the World Trade Centers. And he, his heart stopped. And he thought, that's it. There's nothing. I don't, I'm not going to walk any other wire in my life again. It's Manhattan, a hundred plus stories up in the wind, looking at Manhattan below. There's nothing else. Well, when I was rummaging around for one last imagination swim, some epic distance and place, because place means a lot. Um, I was looking over the maps. I, I remember the day. I was 28 years old. I was in my apartment in New York City, and my friend Candace was with me, and my heart stopped. I saw Cuba on the map. My mom's conversation from age of nine, you could almost swim there, came <laughs> wafting back across my brain, and it became the only thing. As a matter of fact, today, people say, what are you going to swim next? That was so darn exciting, watching that tracker. I would go to sleep and then wake up and then go to work and then play some tennis and then take my kids to school and then get up and then go to sleep. And you're still swimming. It was so exciting. What are you going to swim next? And I say, nothing could stir my soul again like that swim. I have to let that go. Okay. Let's do a let's do a little sidetrack for a sec. Have you and Philippe Petit talked? We have. I've I've known Philippe through the years and um he's you know, he is the the sort of sprightly uh, little leprechaun almost. That's what he reminds you of. Do you recognize your your the spirit in each of you? I do think you so. relate on that sure. level to each other? I think so. And I do also with climbers. You know, when I meet with Ed Vistiers and people who have climbed. What a uh, great Mount Everest climber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Without bottled oxygen, by yeah. the way. Ed's like a noble gentleman. Um, when we talk about that long-term goal and the suffering, but yet the beatific nature you're in. And Philippe, you know, when you see Man on Wire, there's documentary. And even in his backyard, he was only three feet off the ground as a kid. But you could see that he wanted he wanted to live on a wire, you know, odd and eccentric <laughs> as it may be. He was alive on that wire. And you understand that. I do. Very well. I do. So you um, let's talk in general. You made your first effort to uh, swim uh, Cuba to Florida. Uh, as you say, you were 28. 28. And, and <laughs> there were you made four subsequent efforts before, or three more before the fifth one. 
Can we talk in a general way about some of the dangers and tr- trials and tribulations you faced in these swims? You do say something interesting. Um, a- at a certain point as you were finished, I, I saw this on an interview right after you uh, completed the fifth and-, and successful swim. I never knew I would suffer the way I did. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, the box jellyfish was, I think, enemy number one on on all of your swims, right? It was the number yeah. one obstacle. What is a box jellyfish, and what did it do to you? Let's just say you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. I mean, this is a, you know, they even consider, uh, I don't have this on good military authority, but I, it's under consideration uh, to use this animal in terms of, uh, you know, uh, biological warfare. This is um, the most potent venom on earth, in or out of the ocean. It's usually a fatal sting. Almost all people who are stung by the box, if they're stung in a, in a massive way, do not make it through. Um, I have an intelligent team, and we do, you know, deep scientific and technical research, but the box jellyfish wasn't such a prolific issue out in this particular ocean until the Gulf spill of 2010, which brought a lot of debris into the Gulf, which attracts jellyfish, and the issues of global warming. So they were there, but they weren't swarming by the millions every dusk. And I'll tell you something, Bill, this was September 2011, that particular, it was the third attempt. When I got hit by that animal, I was in a state of science fiction pain. Just the... um, the uh, the body felt like it was had been dipped in hot, burning wax. I was on fire. My spinal cord felt like it was paralyzing. And I, the credit that I give to myself and my team was that we didn't give up. Most people to go through that pain would say, get, get me out. I want to live. You know, Bonnie was on the side saying, you know, my God, you're in, you're in, in true anaphylactic shock. We, you know, we, we, we don't know what to do for you. Epinephrine, oxygen, prednisone, and I'm still feeling spinal cord paralysis. I'm having trouble breathing. I swam all through that night after those stings, all through the the next day, bam, stung the next night, swam all through that night, all through the next day. The reason we didn't make it wasn't the stings themselves and quitting at the moment of the stings. It was that now I was so debilitated and swimming so slowly and weakly that we were way off course. You had been pushed too far to, to the east. Pushed to the east. Way and, toward and the Bahamas. there was no way you were going to make it back yep. to Florida. Uh, so um, here's what, as a reader, kind of, uh, it's almost like a a scary movie for me. Um, And as we follow each of your attempts, and as you describe, it's sunset, the sun is coming down. And we have learned that that's when the jellyfish, whether it's the Portuguese man of war, which caused you terrible pain the first swim, or the box jellyfish, which became the real enemy, we know that it's at dusk that they're going to rise to the surface, and that's when you had to be most alert for them as well. Yeah, that that second night in 2011, after being stung like that the first night, I was in a I was in a state of true paranoia. You know, usually I can't worry. I've got a team. I've got a shark team. I can't look. You know, my vision is very poor out there. You're in a state of sensory deprivation. Your eyes are covered with fogged over goggles. You're turning your head 52 times a minute, and your your ears are covered. You know, with a cap to try to keep the heat in your head. So you you really truly unlike mountain climbers and runners and cyclists who uh, they suffer different things, but they do have their senses about them. They can see. They can hear. Whereas I'm in a I'm 
I'm in a total world of my own. I'm out with Stephen Hawking and the majesty of the universe, and bam! When I was hit by that box jellyfish, I, I was I was truly ripped. I was uh, I, I was I was in a state of potential life or death, and that's the only time we could go through the litany of the things that are out there because it's a kind of a mother nature on steroids situation with the sharks, the currents, the particular glycogen deprivation of the body being immersed in a water temperature colder than yours, trying to digest in the supine position. You know, we could go on and on and on about the difficulties, which is why this swim was deemed impossible before I made it. But the box jellyfish, that is without hyperbole, the one time I would say that I was close to life or death. Yeah. Um, the uh, So you... you uh, and, and that, we again, just to get a chrono- keep a chronology straight, you didn't find box jellyfish until until you were in your later swims. But the first swim, you, 28 years old, it, it, it didn't work. You didn't get there. Second swim. That was the weather. That, yeah. that was huge waves. It wasn't the Portuguese men of war. You know, th- that's no picnic. I'm sure anybody who's listening who's been stung by the Portuguese could say, I don't like it, and I don't want to have that happen again. It, it rips you. It, it does uh, can make you nauseous. It can uh, affect your pulmonary system. But no one has ever died from a Portuguese man of war sting, whereas almost everyone who's stung by the box dies. Did any doctor ever give you a reasonable explanation for why it didn't kill you? you and you suffered. You went through this... M- more than one time. How did you survive? Dr. Angel Yanagihara from University of Hawaii is the world's leading expert on the box jellyfish. And she says, I should have died those two nights. I should have died. And the only thing she can think of is that we can measure, uh, you know, venom capacity. We can measure glycogen loss. You can't measure the human spirit. You can't measure if someone has a resolve to live. Yeah, to live. So I don't compare myself to the woman I just saw walk from Syria to Germany with her two young children to get away from ISIS and try to make a better life. She walked from Syria to Germany. Um, so l- let's face it. I, I, you know, these people are in survival, but the will, the the power of the human will, is a lot is a lot more nebulous and powerful than any of us can possibly imagine or measure. Let's take another break. We'll be back with more of my November 2015 conversation with Diana Nyad. Welcome back to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. My guest is Diana Nyad. We recorded the show in November 2015, and it remains one of my very favorites. You turned 60, and what did you realize about what you had done and how you had spent your time since having tried to make this swim? You know, it could be that uh, a lot of people like me have not paid too much attention to age. I had no big crisis in turning 40, 50. I've never understood the fixation on these, especially what we might call milestone ages. Like, why would you be any different at 40 than, let's say, 43? You know, uh, people just, um, I think in our society, more than in others, are fixated on age and what it means and, and what are the logarithms. What should you be? What's the definition of 50? Well, the only time I really came up to facing kind of a, a, a seizure and a, kind of an existential angst about age was 60. Maybe that's because my mom had just died. Yeah. 
She was 82, and maybe maybe 60 is a number. Maybe I'm a lot closer to the end of this thing than I've, than I've ever given any thought to. So um, at, and the way you put that is, uh, when I turned 60, I was stunned silent by the clock's ticking hands because I wasn't engaged. I was wasting time on futile regrets from the past and vapid fantasies for the future. That's right. Wow. That's right. So you went back into training. There's a passage in your book where you talk about the feelings you were experiencing as you started training all over again. So um, I went on my very first training swim in 30 years, hadn't swum a stroke in 30 years in Mexico with this Cuban dream, all a private dream, didn't share it with anybody yet. And after that swim, it was a tough day. It was cold. And um, now was my kind of come to Jesus, which is an odd phrase for an atheist to use, uh, (laughs) moment. And this is the way the book reads. I put my head in my hands and cried on the beach that night. I told myself I better look deep inside and ask if I had this in me. The next six months were going to be hell. Would it be enough if my five dear hearts and a few volunteer experts were the only ones to ever know about this, if they were the only ones on that Florida shore at the end? That night, sleeping restlessly under a three-story, hand-woven palm frond of a Mexican palapa, I contemplated all these probing queries. No, it didn't matter if the public didn't wind up caring. The dream of crossing from Cuba to Florida stirred my soul. This swim was the stuff of building character of granite. I had better steal my will now, tonight. This little swim in Mexico had been tougher than the first little swim. From here on, the journey was going to grow more and more punishing. From this night on, nothing would be allowed to rattle my faith. This night, the contract was made, and I signed on the dotted line deep within. I had been yearning to be a doer again, I had answered the Mary Oliver question with the decision to go full throttle with this wild and precious life of mine. I was in it now, full throttle. That's uh, Diana Nyad um, reading from her uh, new book, her memoir. Singing is very important (laughs) to you as you're on these marathon swims. And at one point, you you said that Emily Sayers, of course, who we all know is here in Georgia, especially one of the Indigo Girls, she pointed out something interesting about your song selection, didn't she? I showed Emily (laughs) Sayers my my little playlist. I have about 85 songs. And they're of my generation. It's Dylan, Joplin, Beatles, Neil Young. Sounds good to me. It's not bad. Every one of them. And, you know, and and I select them at times when I need them. I need Neil Young at 3 o'clock in the dark, desperate morning. How does that work? It, It, which? So you're singing Neil Young. You're swimming. You're, it's, it's, it's four in the morning, it's dark, and what is, how is that working? How is Neil Young singing? I just, how, how are you? I don't have headphones, so this is right. just all my, and of course I'm not singing out loud, that would be absurd underwater, but I am, I'm hearing as if I have a recording of Neil Young singing The Needle and the Damage Done, as if I can hear every breath, every guitar strum of that recording, and by the way, my, my, my stroke is a metronomic Evidently, Emily Saliers told me from a music point of view, 
four-four time because she said every song you've got on here is in four-four time. I said you're kidding. I, I have no idea. And so when I'm out there, it just comes to me. I think I'm feeling like the sun is never going to come up again. This is going to be the first day in the history of the since the Big Bang that the sun will not be coming up. And I've just got to get through these hours of darkness. And I left arm, right arm, starting with I decide I'm going to sing the needle and the damage done a thousand times in a row, literally, the whole song, exactly the way that Neil Young sang it, and I can hear it, I hear you knocking at my cellar door, I love you baby, can I have some more, ooh, the damage done, and you can imagine, that song works a lot better at three, four in the morning, you know, quiet, desperate silence, four billion stars above than it does at one o'clock in the afternoon yeah where i'm probably singing kind of a a, a nice beatles, beatles harmony Martha, you know my yeah. Dear. <laughs> yeah 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 so uh, i will sing a thousand and and that needle and damage done a thousand times first song second note end note will take me exactly 11 hours and seven minutes exactly not not a second more or less you're also hallucinating through a lot of this. Yes? Yeah. Um, You know, I I, I described before the state of sensory deprivation. You don't see and you don't hear. So he's just in a training swim after five, six, seven, eight hours. You're off in your own thoughts. And uh, part of it is the universe around. I'm very interested in the physical universe. And I've been, as a lay person, certainly, been reading about the cosmos since I've been a teenager. So to be out there and consider... You know, as Stephen Hawking says, that at the moment before the Big Bang, most astrophysicists today believe that all of this matter and energy in the universe that we know about and every day we discover more was at that moment literally... And the nano numbers are just as freaky as the macro numbers about billions of trillions of light years away. Well, all of this matter and energy before the Big Bang was literally in the squeezed into the size of a space of a millionth of a millionth of a penny. Well, how can we fathom that? So, you know, when you're out there, and I tell you something, Bill, it's one of the things I'm going to miss about it. I mean, you can't just go, I don't think, take an LSD trip and have the same experience of being under your own steam and and contemplating the vastness and the extraordinary, you know, situation of the earth compared, you know, in, in its place to the sun, in its place in the Milky Way galaxy, in its place in this universe, which we really don't know much about yet. So um, I used to, I used to thrive on all that kind of tripping out out there, tripping the light fantastic. And part of it is crazy, silly little hallucinations like I see the yellow brick yeah, road. Yeah, in the last, you actually followed the yellow brick road on that fifth and successful swim, right? I yelled out to Bonnie <laughs> that second night. I was out of it. I was hanging on by a thread. I was kind of cold, but I saw it right below me. It was winding along that yellow brick road, and I don't have a fixation on that fairy tale. I, you know, but, but and it wasn't Dorothy and the Tin Man. It was the seven dwarfs. They shouldn't be there. And I stopped for a second. I yelled up to Bonnie, Bonnie, do you see the yellow brick road and the seven dwarfs right under here? And she, you know, uh, as she should, why should she talk me out of it? That's going to take a lot of, a lot of time. She just peered over and she said, yeah, of course. yeah, I see them. <laughs> and you know, the great thing about them is they're going right where you're going. Oh. So you just follow them for a while. Wow. 
there's a moment in which Bonnie, uh, you, you're, you've gone through a very, very tough uh, swim, a very tough night. And at one point, Bonnie uh, says to you, Diana, look, look up. What do you see? And you think what you're seeing is the, hor- the horizon and the sun coming up. And that's what you tell her. What does she say? Well, at first, uh, your, your vision is so poor. So she said, look, look, she felt I needed uh, something. I needed some, so, some good news, even though we were very far. We were close to 15 hours more of swimming. We didn't know that, but we weren't right there. And she said, look, I, I, I want you to see something. It's going to help you. Look over there. What do you see? And I said, I don't know, black. I see black on black on black. On. And she said, no, but look, look, come on. Look, feather up. Look a little bit. And I said, oh. There was a little white filament in the middle of the black, streaming along like horizontally. And I said, the sun's coming up. I'm going to be able to take off all the jellyfish gear because you only need it at night. Uh, the, The sun's rays are going to warm my body. And Bonnie was crying by then. And she's not that much a crier. And she said, though, it's better than the sun. And I kept thinking, what in the world? Sun is hope. What could be better than the sun? And she said, those are the lights of Key West. <laughs> that was the vision I, I, uh, I believed in for 35 years, that I would one day see them at the end of the rainbow. I, I have to acknowledge that at that moment and for the rest of your book, I, had, I wept. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, because thank you for your respect. So let's just finish up with a few other interesting, for me, interesting questions. First of all, what's your regular workout look like? I mean, what, do you have a normal workout? Like, a, like I work out seven days a week. I bet you do too. What's your workout look like? You know, Bill, I, I pride myself on being a badass, you know? Uh, so, you know, I, I like to do, you know, tough, long series of, uh, of, of calisthenics. and But right now... That, uh, that, that Bonnie, that best friend of mine, and I are getting ready to walk across America. Yeah. That's next summer. So right now, and at first I was poo-pooing walking, but you go out and walk 20 miles, and it takes a long time to fit that in. Uh, but we're going to be walking a marathon a day, 26.2 miles a day. Now, many people have walked across America. It's, it's not the achievement of it that we're after. Those five months, what, what we're going to do is we're going to get a million people to join us. 25,000 here, 500 here, and when we arrive, in Washington, D.C., we're going to say, let's become a nation of walkers. So we, we call ourselves Everwalk, and we're just beginning. It's called everwalk2016.com. We're just beginning to organize it. It's a nightmare to organize the insurance, the medical protection, the route itself, um, what towns Why would you go do through. anything easy? Exactly. That's what I say. That's what I say. It's going to, you know what? It's going to be an American institution. We are going to literally bring down the numbers over 10 years of Everwalks every summer. First big one across. Then we're going to do Atlanta to Key West. Then we're going to do uh, Portland, Oregon to New York City and Seattle to, you know, I mean, Portland, Maine to New yeah. York City. We're going to walk every summer. I'd like to go walk the length of Cuba with a bunch of Cuban-Americans and Cubans who haven't seen each other uh-huh. for, since 1959, go shoulder to shoulder the length of Cuba. So uh, believe me, I'd rather be a swimmer, but uh, the masses aren't going to be swimming are, like they can walk. Are, but I, So I started to ask that question and about your workout regimen and that sort of thing because I there is going to come a time when your body is going to begin to fail you. I mean, it happens to each and every one of us. As you point out, we are on a one-way street. Yeah, sure. How do you contemplate that moment or, or that series of moments when your body will not respond the well, way I, it I, has Well, you know, now? I don't think life works that way. Life is gradual. 
Um, well, sure. You know, so, I, for instance, I don't contemplate death right now. You I'm don't. very vital, you know. And so, of course, we're all going to die. But as far as I can tell, unless there's an accident or you know an unforeseen you know uh, you know situation that 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 doesn't seem to be on the horizon for me, let's say I'm going to die when I'm 96. I don't know. But but at that moment, if you ask me then when I'm 96, how do you feel about dying? I'm sure that I will be contemplating it because you're close to it. Right now, I got nothing slowing down. Now, you could talk to me when I'm um, 86, and maybe some things are going to be slowed down, and I can't do a, hun- a thousand jumping jacks in a, in a quick, fast, you know, dynamic <laughs> well, Welcome hurry. to my world. Yeah, but maybe I will. You know, I just met Jack LaLanne's widow. I mean, the woman's 85. She does 50 push-ups, nose to ground, um, all the way. So I don't put any any preconceptions on that. You know, I, I will. The, the, the body, the organs are going to fail one day, and the muscles are going to shrink and and I'm going to be three inches shorter than I am now. But I'm I'm uh, you know that happens gradually. You don't you don't foresee that. You just keep going day to day as to where you are. And I'm still a, a badass at 66. <laughs> what can I say? Well, you're you're a badass, and Diana and I add you are a, a, a great inspiration to to I think everyone who knows your story, and to all of us who have been fortunate enough to read your book, Find a Way. As we uh, close the interview, and I'm so happy that you've been here, there's only one thing to say to you. Onward. Onward. <laughs> Onward, indeed. You know, the, the conversation has been wonderful. I, I appreciate it very much. That's the conversation I had with Diana Nyad in 2015, right after publication of her memoir, Find a Way. As she was leaving the studio, Nyad and I talked about the fact that we both shared a passion for the music of Laura Nero. Nyad writes in her book that she actually became a Nero groupie for a time, following her from concert to concert. So I asked her if she had a favorite Nero song that we could play at the end of our show. After listening to the extraordinary story of her refusal to give up a quest that racked her body, almost cost her her life, and haunted her through four failures, you shouldn't be surprised by the song she chose. Yes, it's gonna take a miracle. Diana Nyad was 66 years old when she visited Two-Way Street back in 2015. This August, she'll turn 69. But as she promised in our conversation, she is still going strong. She's traded long-distance swimming for marathon walking. Two years ago, she and Bonnie Stoll created an organization called Everwalk. Their vision, they say on the Everwalk website, is to get one million people to rocket the current walking wave into a tsunami. Their first group walk was a 134-mile journey along the Southern California coast from L.A. to San Diego. Then they crossed the country to take another group of walkers on another 134-mile path from Boston to Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And coming up on August 5th, they'll lead another 100-mile-plus walk from White Rock, Canada to Puget Sound. So clearly, Diana wasn't just boasting when she told me, You just keep going day to day as to where you are, and I'm still a a badass at 66. (laughs) What can I say? We've posted a link to the Everwalk website on our website at gpb.org slash TWS if you want more information. Anymore, you must, must be.